0: I, I'm, I don't know, we've been, we've been exploring this idea of this contrasting two divergent parts of expressing ourselves and connecting to people. On the one hand, when we create barriers around ourselves, so it can only promote disconnection and not connection. And therefore, opening up and revealing our inner worlds seems to be the correct path of embracing connection. On the other hand, it appears that when we open up ourselves and we release the inner sanctum of our private worlds, we in turn desecrate them. And we kind of straddling between how do we how do we make peace between these two divergent ideas, and how do we actually plot a course in our relationship? What's interesting is the way that uh, the. The Malbim, the Baalbim introduces Mishlei. So Mishlei is a is a compilation of so called proverbs by Shlomo HaMelech, King Solomon the King, and the first words in the very first verse. Well, to be corrected, the first words in the second verse. To know chokma, which is wisdom, and musa and that's really the topic of what we're talking about. And the 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 Malbim, who is a quite a revolutionary figure in Jewish history, living around about eighteen hundreds, and he devoted his majority of his life towards explaining in an extremely erudite and, and powerful fashion, the Tanakh, the 24 books of what we'd call the Jewish Bible. And he focuses a lot on the actual words and showing how the words carry with them deep, deep ideas. The way he describes chokhmah, I'm going to read it to you because I think it's profound. Chokhmah. I'll read it to you in Hebrew and then attempt the translation. Kol ha-metu'ar b'shem chokhmah. Anything which is described as chokhmah, wisdom. Tzarech she-tiena b'oysa ha-inyan shnei drachim ha-fuchim ze-mizeh. Nim tzayim kaim. It has to, can only chokhmah, wisdom, is when there are two completely different paths, very distinct, one from another, when you've got these two different ways of being, two divergent paths, one of them will be described as chochmah, the other one is sichlus, which means one will be considered wise and the other one unwise or foolish. And you have to figure out where's the correct place. But when there's not an ambiguity in how I should approach a given topic, it has to be approached in one particular way, that's not Chochmah. I Meaning chokma applies to the ambiguity of the world, that there's confusion. There's no, how do point in case our situation? When you have two ways of being, on the one hand, shall I open myself up and allow my inner world to gush out to all of you? Or should I close myself down and preserve the sanctity of my inner life? Which way should I turn? If I turn, one way will it be considered wise and the other way unwise? And if so, which way would be the wise way to go? But if there's only one way of being, so that's not chokhmah. For example, showing kindness to others. That's not chokhmah, because kindness is an approach to life which is intrinsically part of the human reality. It preserves the uh, glue that keeps society together. So that's not, there's, no, there's no alternative, really. Even globally, people recognize the need for philanthropy. It's not, it's not a contested idea. That's not chokhmah. Chokhmah is more subtle when there's different ways of seeing it. Um, and he goes on and he says for example humility and pride truth and falsehood love and hate generosity and stinginess eating and drinking um promiscuity and restraint. HaKadosh Sanctity and impurity. So now, in those areas, because there's ambiguity, it could be that he expands further than what I said. And I'm going to maybe retract what I said and see what he says. Now, this this is the important point. V'ain Koyach We do not have the capacity from our own wisdom and understanding to figure out how to create this balance. It's almost impossible for human reasoning to come up with a healthy way of understanding where to draw the line in what's considered a legitimate approach. And therefore, Chochmah intrinsically is spiritual wisdom. It can't be proven. Chochmah cannot be proven. And therefore, any time when it says Chochmah in the writings, it refers to a spiritual insight, a divine wisdom. So now, this is a really interesting point. Because we live in a world which is dominated by the Western scientific paradigm. And it's very easy to become beguiled and fooled into looking toward that paradigm as a healthy way of how I should manage my life. In other words, as a chokhmah. And I will try to present that the Western world, with all its scientific breakthroughs and revolutions, and the incredible advances that have been made in our civilization, perhaps Chochme is still missing. And let's work out, before we go further, the notion of, as a concept, how does science operate? And I suppose the the, the, the core, the, the essence of the Western world, and the, the reference is always, well, we have to look towards science for our answers. Science <laughs> operates by exploring the known reality through empirical investigation and experimentation, in order to develop theories upon can be based how things work, and then that will create innovation. So once I recognise, I reveal in the world certain hidden laws, like say for example the law of gravity. So I can use that knowledge to innovate um, inventions when I discover through perhaps magnetism the idea of electricity that can bring about a whole way of channeling that revelation into the practical world of human endeavor. And that's the pathway that science goes along. But the very nature of science is it's ever-changing because it never really has all the variables in place. And therefore, science is almost inevitably, any scientific theory that we presently possess will almost inevitably be overturned in the coming decades. So something which was taken for granted for so many centuries, which is Newtonian physics, with the advent of um, modern science and the, what's it called? the dream that stuff is made of? Um, Quantum quantum physics. The minute you move into the world of quantum physics, so the whole Newtonian model becomes (laughs) redundant, totally redundant. And what kind of innovations will, will grow out of quantum physics as a working plan of how the world works, we can't yet fathom. But the notion that human intent can influence the result of an experiment is earth-shattering. Do you know what I'm talking about, Lewis? I don't know anything about quantum I know very little about quantum physics. The only thing I've read about quantum physics is that the intent of the experimenter influences the result of the experiment. So, for example, like this. So there's a big machlakes if... Um, sorry, dispute. If light is wave or particle nature. Do you remember your... So there's a big... What is it? Is, it, is, is, is a is array of light made up of particles or is it a wave? So when they do the experiment by, I suppose, shooting light through a prism, so if the experimenter believes it's of wave nature... Then he'll be able to register waves in the in, in the light. But if he believes it's particles, so then it will be particle. Ralph, can we have some corroboration from um, you there? If anyone knows the the regular question of like if a tree falls in the forest, does it make a sound? Again, no one's there to hear it does it make a sound. According to Newtonian physics, of course it does. It's right. still something that exists and that like, things still happen even if nothing's ever it. According to quantum physics, that's not, it's not entirely true or not necessarily. Freaky, right? Freaky. <laughs> if a tree falls in the forest, doesn't make a sound. Newtonian physics, of course it does because there's force acting against other forces it's going to make a sound. According to quantum physics, if it's not made to witness it, it may not. So you never know what t- trees are doing when you're not watching them, which is damn important to know, especially if you're a gardener. Tovia. Uh, well, you just bring me back in? I'm a lost, i just So, to... so, so, what I'm just pointing out to you in, in the in, in the bigger picture is that science is work in progress. It's mm-hmm. never a conclusion which is which is stuck and fixed. Mathematics, by contrast, formulas which are mathematical formulas invented by um, by Pythagoras are still alive and kicking, and always will be. Because it's an absolute. Science deals with variables where not all the variables are known. So it's it's always going to be moving and changing. So as much as the scientific advances of the modern world have given us, but we know that they're going to be moving and changing. And therefore, if we look to science to answer the quintessential questions of how to conduct my life and then base myself on it, the life that I choose to conduct today will be revolutionized tomorrow and then a decade later and a decade later. So it means that my path of life, for example, for example, let's just track the moral history of some of the changes that have occurred in the last few decades in Western thinking. So in the 50s, if you want to raise a good child, one of the crucial points was harsh discipline. And if your child misbehaves, you find a way of disciplining them. If you go back, I don't know if it was in the 50s or beforehand, but... If your kid misbehaves, give him a hit. When I grew up in school in South Africa, the way that misbehavior was punished was with a cane. The headmaster would have a long bamboo stick, and if you did something wrong, you'd go into his office, he'd make you drop your rods, take down your trousers, pants, and on your bare bottom, he would whack you until he would leave welts remaining on your flesh. And that was a way of disciplining. And that was looked upon as good and ethical and productive. In other words, if you went to the educational experts of the time and you said, how should we educate a child? They'd say to you, you have to make sure there's discipline in the classroom. And if there's no discipline, what should you do? You should send him to the principal's office where he'll be hit. Now, in South Africa, it kind of lingered on for a bit longer than the rest of the world, granted. (laughs) But had you been in a place previous to that, in Victorian England, for example, good education was you got wrapped over the knuckles if you did something wrong. And if you were left-handed, your left hand was tied behind your back and you are forced to write with your right hand. So these are kind of educational theories, which if you tried to put them in place in the modern schooling system, you'd get shot. (laughs) You'd literally get shot. So education has changed. Now there's a whole different notion about education has to be seeing the needs of the child etc cetera, etc. Cetera. Now what's going to happen in 10 years time we have no idea. But one thing is pretty certain, it's going to be very different from the way it is today. So now, when I'm devoting myself to a life principle that I believe in, and that life principle is based on the most recent fad in the Western world, so then I'm pretty much putting myself in a situation where I'm going to be infinitely insecure. Because I know this thing that I'm saying, this is what works, will not be working tomorrow. So in terms of the longevity of life Wisdom and that's why I refer to wisdom as opposed to technological advancement, which is kind of the um the material world becoming more and more accessible and and harnessed and used. I'm talking about more the life world. I'll just give you an example before we get rid of Ralph's question, about parenting. So arguably in the Western world, parents are in a worse situation than they've ever been in in terms of getting children to participate and help in, in, in daily chores. Now, you can think about your, your, your childhood, but in the Western world, daily chores and getting children to cooperate just to help around the house is almost, it's almost like a fantasy. And a whole lot of different behavioral psychologists have come up with ways of encouraging and rewarding, and, and, and nothing seems to work. And the level of frustration in parenting today you guys are not yet parents, um, but you'll get into it. And that's why the one parent in the room is smiling his head off because he realizes what it means. That people look upon it as an a extremely overwhelming task. Like, how can you be a parent, parent? And it's so hard. And the Western world has given us so many different rules of parenting, and unfortunately they're changing the whole time. But there's wisdoms of parenting. In other words, if you go to cultures, there are cultures where the children naturally are helpful Caring, They volunteer to do chores. They automatically take care of their younger siblings. They lift the burden off their parents when they see there's a necessity to do so. And these cultures have been alive and kicking for thousands of years, functioning in terms of family systems exceptionally well. And the Western world, with all its psychological innovations and scientific breakthroughs, can't create a family structure which works. Begadol, in a great in like in the in the larger scheme. So so one has to ask oneself, well, let's maybe differentiate between wisdom and scientific innovation. And when it comes to wisdom, perhaps the portal the the, the the destination, the origin of where we should be drawing from is not something which is discovered through empirical investigation. And perhaps that method is not sufficient to provide a way of life. And for a way of life, because because there are so many variables and because there's such deep complexity to the human condition, it can only, I would volunteer, come from a higher source, Ralph. Okay, so. So that's really what the Malbim says is an introduction to Chochmah. Chochmah is not that which we discover through empirical study. It's not that which we know because we've done enough experimentation and we've been able to extrapolate from the physical world some kind of law. It's something which comes from a higher place because the notions of how to balance, and really it's all about balance, how to balance our lives and knowing where exactly to draw the line between when should I be really, really strong and proud, and forthright, and when should I be submissive, and humble, and withdrawing? When should I be open, and candid, and authentic? And when should I be concealed, and hidden, and protective? When should I be active, engaging, and friendly? And when should I withdraw, and not enact a friendship bond? So those differences are so profound, and so subtle, human knowledge can never really come to terms with it. And that's what Chochmah is called. So Chochmah is this this whole new thing. And and really in our spiritual system, that's one of the things that perhaps typifies our experience of of Jewish life lived in its fullest extent. And the beautiful thing about us as we sit here today in 2022 is we've been doing this for 3,333 years, which is arguably, if not the oldest culture in the world, we're doing pretty well. We are doing exceptionally well, and I mean we're doing well because, for me and my experience, my literal experience of living life connected to Torah, I feel the wisdom through my daily life. I feel the wisdom in terms of the way I wake up in the morning, the way I go to sleep at night, the way I conduct myself, the way I interact with myself. Now, am I embodying all the principles of Jewish spirituality in the to the nth degree? And in the, in the, in the no, no, I'm falling way short of the mark. But in falling way short of the mark, my life is directed, it's engaged, it's vital. There's a platform for dealing with the maladies of the modern world, such as boredom, anxiety, depression, a lack of happiness, where I feel none of those things are overcoming me in my life because my spiritual system, my structure is so profound and so strong, it keeps me rooted and balanced and healthily um, orientated. As an example, to hammer it home, what do you do when you wake up in the morning? Now there could be many different things that I'm assuming Western, Western knowledge will come up with things that perhaps suggest a coffee, exercise, but the Three thousand-year tradition that we have is the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning is appreciate, appreciate the gift of life. And in those first make it waking moments, which is a crucial point of the day, perhaps the head of the day that everything else follows. Try to bring into those moments of awake wakefulness that movement from the subconscious to the conscious experience of living. To recognize, last night when I went to sleep, I died, and today I am born, and have the appreciation of the freshness, the newness, and the beauty and gift of life. And so I say these words, which are so profound. My first, the first word that crossed my lip, lips is "I thank," but the word "I thank" has a duality attached to it. Because in Hebrew, the word moder means also, I admit, I confess. And the notion of admission and confession is a recognition of limitation. I'm not perfect. I need another. I can't do this by myself. I need external support. So "moder," I admit, ani, I, lefanecho, in front of you, and then there's this shift because I recognize in this humble submission to the notion that there is a higher force and that my life is not self-generated. And this is something which is, I think, intuitively we're aware of, that gratefulness, gratitude comes together with the recognition of the other. And if I am grateful, I need to be grateful towards someone. So when I wake up in the morning and I'm grateful for the new life that's rushing through my veins as my heart beats blood into my being, and I'm grateful. Who am I grateful to? Can't be grateful to my heart, that's me. Can't be grateful to my blood. I have to be grateful to some kind of higher energy that's giving me the life. And in fact, the gratefulness is the starting point of initiating a relationship with the higher power that is bestowing me through love and kindness and care. there is a there is I am in front of you. Melech, you have absolute control. Chai, vital. The always will be. Sheikh Zartobi that you gave back to me. Nishmasi, my soul, my life force, my energetic existence. bchemla with compassion. But the notion of chemla has a specific connotation. It means with the compassion of recognizing my unique part that I play in the world. Rabbe emunasecho, so great is your faithfulness towards me. And in those waking moments, I've become humble. I've become connected. I've become grateful. I've become aware of my purpose in life. Whoa. What a wake up. What a wake up. And that wisdom has flown through the veins of Jewish living for 3,000 years. And it works. It works. It works to wake up that way. When you wake up that way, and those are your thoughts when you wake up, so you're on a great start to the day. You're on a great start to the day. And you may say, yes, but it's hard for me. When I wake up, the first thing I think is, shut off that stupid alarm. How can I get out of this? Oh my gosh, I can't believe it's so early in the morning. What am I doing in my eye? I'm not saying that spiritual grandeur is automatically accessible and may take work. But think about that goal that we're striving to get. And it could be that waking up that day every morning At right now, at this point of our level of spiritual evolution is not quite where we're at, but it's something that we can strive towards, and we can get there. In other words, the system is incredible, and striving for the system is already part of the system. So even the notion that being able to evaluate and say, wow, my wake-up this morning wasn't ideal, because I have an ideal. I have an ideal. And then the whole next Transition from wakefulness, from sleep to wakefulness. It keeps on going, it keeps on going. Next thing I do is I wash my hands, recognizing that my impact on the world, my handiwork should be purified and designated, refocused, refocused. And then after relieving myself, I become consciously aware of the complexity of my biological body. And I say, Ashe Yatza recognizing through a meditative process of, again, reconnecting, but much more specifically to the magnificent workings of every component of my living miracle of a body. And then I go deeper, and I become conscious of a soul that 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 body is a key, is a vessel for. And then I recognize the wisdom of the Torah that allows me access to these things. And then I begin this process. So that's moidani, and then I head into this process <laughs> where I meditate in the most mindful of ways about every component of my physical world. And what a way to wake up. And I'm going to focus on the essence. I sit there and I recognize the gift of sight. And I go, and I opened my eyes, recognizing the beauty of being able to see and differentiate between colors, to see near and far without having to have time to focus. And I say, my sight. And then I realize the gift of being dressed, the dignity it gives me, and the fact that I have clothes <coughs> to put on my body, and I go... And then I realize that there are so many people that have restrictions in their movement and they're limited. limited and some people are even paralyzed and stuck into wheelchairs and I go, stretching out, moving my body. And then I realize that I can stand up upright and I go, and then I realize that the, the, the ground I'm treading on is terra firm and I go, and then I say that I've got shoes to wear which allow me to walk and, and then I go, and then I actually realize that the my pathway. I have the movement of walking. I can actually walk, making Messiah And then I realize that I've got the grit to be able to run my life. And then I realize I've got this dignity, this crown. I recognize all the strength given to me comes from a higher source. Whoa. Whoa. And people are struggling for mindfulness. But in that just waking up, those first 15 minutes of wakefulness are jam-packed, laden with powerful spiritual transformational tools. And that's just one tiny snippet of our deep spiritual life. Wisdom. Higher wisdom. Years and years and years of investigation and empirical experimentation can't get you there. It comes from a place beyond the capacity of the narrow confines of the rational mind. To be continued, thank you for your patience.